0: This week on Art in the Air features documentary producer Cindy Biestek and her new film about Cuban guitar sensation, Eladies Ocha, airing October on Lakeshore PBS. Next, we have sculptor Bonnie Zimmer, who creates vessels and works from natural and found materials. Our spotlight is on Laporte County Symphony, discussing the Drayton Family Children's Concert Series, now in its 31st year.
1: Express yourself through art, and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art, and show the world your heart. With Esther and Mary are on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther are on the air our way. Express yourself hard art and show the world your heart. Express yourself to art and show the world your heart.
0: Welcome, you're listening to Art on the Air on WVLP 103.1 FM and Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, our weekly program covering arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City.
2: Aloha, everyone.
0: We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art in the Air streams live at wvlp.org and is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Plus is also heard on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM every Sunday at 7 p.m. Also streaming live at lakeshorepublicradio.org and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash A-O-T-A. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash A-O-T-A. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. And like to welcome back to Art in the Air Spotlight. Once again, Tim King from LaPorte County Symphony. And uh, they're starting up their season right now with lots of things. But the next thing coming up is the Drayton Family Children's Concert, Wednesday, October 13th. And the times will vary. He'll talk about that. Tim, welcome back to Art in the Air Spotlight.
3: Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me back. Holly. Hi, Tim.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, this is an ongoing, uh, you've had a family concert, a children's series for some time. But uh, now tell us about that and I guess how it's working differently with, of course, the COVID thing and how you get right. that out to the schools.
3: Well, um, this is the 33rd annual uh, children's concert. We named it after the Drayton family who have been longtime supporters of the orchestra and especially the children's concerts. So we call it, now call it the Drayton family children's educational concerts. This is going to be, as you said, October the 13th, and the time will be "Fantasy and Fairy Tales." And this is actually going to be our new music director, Dr. Carolyn Watson's first concert. Um, <clears throat> now, this is for the schools—whether uh, you're home school, public school, private school—we don't care. We just want you to come to the concert. And for for most for most of these students, it's the very first time that they hear a live orchestra even a live ensemble, believe it or not. But I mean, it's, it's been. I've heard many music teachers in, in, in our area who have said that when the students start up in band and orchestra in the fifth and sixth grade, that one of the reasons they did it was because they came to these children's concerts and really excited about the music. And I really like that particular instrument. I want to learn how to play that one. So she uh, has put together a very nice program. These programs are about 40 to 45 minutes in length. Um, and they have an education guide that goes with them, which is a wonderful guide uh, that Megan Sullivan, who teaches in the middle school here in the Porte School System, she put together a beautiful, I mean, and it's thick too. It's like 45, 50 pages long. So there's tons of um, activities for the students and um, lessons for the teachers. So we're going to be doing uh, Grieg's in the Hall of the Mountain King, which is a great stirring opener. We're going to be doing a little bit of Swan Lake of Tchaikovsky, uh, a little bit of Hansel and Gretel from Hupperdink. We're going to be doing Hedwig's thing from Harry Potter. Ah, you go. And then, of course, you, you gotta, if you're going to do fantasies and fairy tales, you have to end with the William Tell overture, the finale of the overture of Rossini. So that, that basically is the concert in a nutshell. Um, and so we offer this to schools homeschool whatever if they, if anyone is interested they certainly can call the orchestra office at 219-362-9020 and can attend and the other good thing is it's $1 per student wow $1 per What What a bargain it started 33 well, so years important. ago $1 yeah. it's still $1 after 33 years and we're very committed the healthcare foundational report is our huge sponsor um, Michigan City Community Enrichment Corporation Teachers Credit Union Kankakee Valley, REMC, and some other folks that help us raise enough money that we can keep the prices low.
0: That's great. And uh, this is Carolyn's first time out. I know she'll be doing something. We'll talk about that later, uh, but the children's concerts, Uh, does there thing for general ed in that material too? Like if a general ed teacher wanted to deal with some of that stuff?
3: There are items that the general ed teacher, the general elementary teacher, it's basically what we, we gear these concerts for really grades three through five, right? have some second graders. We do have some sixth graders, but it's basically for, for grades three through five. And yes, if you were an elementary teacher, uh, there are obviously some items that you couldn't do, but, but there are some things in there that, um, a regular classroom teacher could take advantage of for sure.
0: Now, Carolyn Watson is making her debut uh, actually with this, but actually her debut with the regular orchestra in season is on November 13th. Tell us about that. It's going to be sounds like a fun concert.
3: Well, she she's she's put together a really nice program, um, a jazzy American salute. It's all American composers. So we're doing uh, three dances on the town of Leonard Bernstein. Um, we're doing a couple of, uh, because it's so close to Veterans Day, we're going to be doing a couple of pieces honoring our veterans. Uh, we're, we're doing a piece that I was not familiar with. Of course, everybody knows the famous clarinet is Artie Shaw, but it turns out that Artie Shaw wrote a clarinet concerto. Wow. It's nine minutes long, not very long. It is fantastic. It's wonderful. So we have a gentleman that's coming in to solo on that. Uh, for Arnie Shaw's Clarinet Concerto, and then we're going to be performing William Grant Still's African American Symphony, one of the first early African American composers of the early 20th century, whose name is really just now starting to come into, into play. But um, if you were to listen to this and didn't know who it was, you would think it was George Gershwin. That's the kind of feel that you get uh, from this. So she's really put together a, a, a beautiful program, Um and the 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 opening piece is going to be a piece called Lightspeed by a 25-year-old composer by the name of Kevin Day, who is still in school, believe it or not, <laughs> and his is really making a name with orchestras. And that's what I love about Carolyn. She's got her finger on the pulse of stuff that's going on um, right now. Uh, and we need that. So I, I'm really happy. I've all these pieces are on YouTube. You can, you can Google them and find them and they're fantastic. It's going to be a great concert.
0: And she just getting a, an award nomination in Australia, didn't she? Yes, yeah,
3: a huge thing. It's called the Advance Awards. It's a very, very prestigious award that she's been nominated for. Um, and we just couldn't be more thrilled. I've told people she hasn't conducted the first downbeat and she's already given us some fame. So uh-huh. we're really, really happy about that. Very proud of her.
0: Okay, so Wednesday, October 13th, uh, the 33rd Drayton Family uh, Children's Concert, uh, LaPorte County Symphony. Tim, thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air Spotlight.
3: Appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Tim.
0: You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM.
1: A lot of people, he is the Cuban Johnny Cash.
4: From San Chagotiba, from Bonavista Social Club, El Captain, the Afro Cuban Airlines, Compadres, Iliade Sochoa.
0: What you just heard is the trailer from our guest today on Art of the Air, who just made a documentary, and actually is of a concert documentary, Eladis Ocha, live at La Casa della Trova, and that will be airing on Lakeshore PBS October sixth at eleven PM, October nineteenth at nine PM, and October twenty seventh at nine PM. She was born and raised in Northwest Indiana. She's an American director and producer who eventually studied film and documentary filmmaking at New York University. She also founded her own film company based in uh, Mexico, Posivation. Uh, She also previously made the documentary The Kings of the Cuban Sun in 2009, telling the story of the music of the Santiago de Cuba supergroup, and they also won several Latin Grammys. Please welcome to Art on the Air, Cynthia Biestec.
4: Uh, thank you so much.
0: Aloha. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your story about uh, where you went to college and just uh, how you got from where you were to where you are now.
4: I uh, went away to college, to a small women's college in Fulton, Missouri, four-year liberal small women's college. And uh, after that, I couldn't wait to hit the big city, so followed a dream and moved to San Francisco, where I worked on the uh, executive training program for a big department store and because my background was business and retailing. And I had a grandmother that lived in the suburbs of San Francisco. And so we would visit her in the summers. And, of course, she'd fall in love with with the whole Bay Area. So I did that, stayed there two or three years, and then followed another dream, as I do, (laughs) uh, of going to Europe. Back in the day where you could buy a Eurail Pass for, like, $300 for three months. So did that in the 70s and then settled down Northwest Indiana and married the love of my life back in those days (laughs) and uh, settled settled Northwest Indiana. And then uh, his job took us to Houston. That relationship unfortunately ended in Houston after many years, but went ahead, life goes on, went ahead and lived in Boise, Idaho, where I had a younger brother and then moved around to New Orleans doing some business and then out to New Jersey. That's where actually the film part uh, of my life started, was that moved to New Jersey doing some business there and wondering what I was going to do that summer. So what I did was pick up a big uh, schedule from the continuing ed program and at New York university. And, uh, that I found what I thought would be interesting just for the summer to take a a film course, a video course. And I did that. We were filming on the streets in New York, and it was just fun. And so I went ahead and took the video two course. And then I thought, gee, you know, then I saw that they were offering a documentary class. And that was the third class I took. And bingo, I thought. This is it. I'm going to change course of my life. I'm going to go make documentary films. And so that's what happened at that part. Then just from then on, uh, looked at some programs of of offering video programs. And this college on the East Coast is actually for photography, very well known. They were offering a video workshop in Havana, Cuba. And I thought, how interesting Havana. You know, you hear... Many things about it, mainly negative, but I thought that's got to be interesting. So I joined the group and went for two weeks over to Havana, Cuba, in March of 19, um, in 2000, excuse me, March of 2000, and that was my first trip to Cuba. And immediately fell in love with the whole the culture, the friendly people. The music was on every corner. Anybody that's been to Cuba knows the rum is flowing, you know, all over <laughs> the music. Just the culture seems so rich. I remember one one memory that stuck out was my first taxi driver. He spoke like three or four languages, and I thought, "Wow, this is a very educated society," which 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 it really it really is. Um, and so that was in two thousand. And then I returned in 2003 with another group from San Francisco, um, which was from Global Exchange. They're a human rights group. They were offering a bus trip across the island where you started in Havana in the western part, and you went all the way to the eastern part, and you followed the different steps of the revolution. And I found that extremely romantic, again, going to Cuba (laughs) <laughs> you know, for the music and the whole thing. So I did that in the fall of 2003, and that tour ended up in the second largest city of Santiago de Cuba, which is the most Afro-Caribbean of of of, of the cities, and it's very close to Jamaica's to the south. Guantanamo's just 70 miles, and then across from there would be would be Haiti. So you're in a very different feeling than you get in Havana. And um, anyway, uh, that that evening, we were only there for one night in the famous La Casa de la Trova. Um, I saw a sign that the Iliad Sochoa from the famous group Buena Vista Social Club uh, was playing that, that evening. So I got my group together and, you know, tried to enthuse, have enthusiasm with them. And we did go. We were late, so we didn't get seats very close, but we did get to see the show with the famous Iliadis Ochoa, who I had seen previous to that, like three years before that, when the film came out in 1996. Uh, for those who don't know who Iliadis is, he's world famous for his black hat, cowboy hat, <laughs> black boots. It's but he, he was the head, head uh, singer. Uh, and guitar player of of that group, of the old musicians that got together. He was one of the younger of, of that group. So um, like I say, I had seen the film. I loved it. The story was just wonderful how they got these old Cuban musicians that were all but forgotten together and they formed this group. No one ever dreamed that it would be a worldwide sensation. And that's what really put the Cuban traditional music back, 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 you know, on the map uh, back in 1996 to 2000. So I kind of hit that right after the boom of of that documentary. Did you get to meet him that first night? No, no. The place was packed. Um, probably the venue probably sits comfortably 100, 150. There must have been 300 plus people. Um, locals were mixing with tourists. Um, it was just incredible. I had my cheap little camera that I carried everywhere with me. And I tried to film him from a distance. But the the night was magical. And it happened to be that I made two contacts that night. Little did I dream that little of I, the furthest thing from my mind back in that in that day of 2003 would, would be ending up where I am now, but that's the beauty of life, right? So um, that was the start of me returning, uh, actually moving to Mexico to make this dream possible. So I had a, a short commute from Cancun over to Havana and then another short flight from Havana to Santiago. And I was at every festival, two or three, four times a year in the beginning, getting contacts, and just uh, absolutely fell in love with this most infectious music I'd, I'd ever heard.
2: Were you filming at that point? So after film school, uh, did, you, did you take your camera around and start filming before you started your actual documentary? No, Cuba
4: was really the first time that I actually started filming a, a potential subject was in Cuba.
0: And that wasn't your first documentary, What we're talking about you had uh, another documentary called The Kings of the Cuban Sun. And so uh, that was uh, your first one. So tell us a little bit about the background on that.
4: Okay. A good friend of mine, producer uh, Alden Gonzalez, was good friends of the director of this group called Septeto Sandiaguerra. And at the time back in, when did I do that? Oh, nine? Yeah. That group was not very well known outside of Santiago, but very well known for their energy and their music was different from all the other wonderful groups. I mean, one group is as wonderful as Cuba is the next. But this one really stood out. He was looking for uh, potential investors to make a documentary about this group because he felt that it was really a strong group. He was manager, of course. And I, of course, got wind of it. He told me, and he was at the time speaking with an Australian um, a producer who was interested in Cuban music. And um, so long story short, the investment was, I think, 20000 at the time, which seemed like a lot. But I thought, well, my brother said, hey, if you could afford it, do it. It's a good experience. <laughs> so anyway, took the savings and went back and forth again, going from Mexico Mexico making that pretty easy to do. And we started filming the background of this group and going to the different homes and meeting their family and talking to them about their experiences. And the film ended up being seen not, um, unfortunately not. We showed it in different festivals in Cuba and I think a few around Latin America. But it didn't go, you know, PBS or anything like that. But this group ended up being uh, phenomenal. They have two Latin Grammys and a Grammy nomination, which is unbelievable for a small group from Santiago de Cuba. Havana groups are the ones that usually get nominated for Grammys and things like that. So it was exciting. Um, I've got the only documentary uh, we probably should you know, if I ever wanted to 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 really put it in festivals, it needs to be uh, re-edited. It, it's quite long, but that was the start, and it was almost the thr- one of the thrills of my life to be involved with the Cubans and be involved with the music and uh, just be p- part of it.
0: I assume you have a mastery of Spanish with all this uh, contact in Mexico and uh, Cuba.
4: I the Cuban Spanish is uh, very different from your regular Spanish from. Spain, of course, being the mother country, very different from Mexico where I've lived the past 20 years. It's very, especially in the eastern part of Cuba, it's more Afro. It's got the Afro because of the influence of the African coming to that part. So I use that as an excuse if my Spanish was probably excellent. (laughs) I wouldn't have a hard time. I, I get my point across, but the Cubans being very honest. The Cubans are so edu- well educated. Uh, most of them, not in the beginning, but through the years, they just got to, abs- my Spanish stayed kind of to a to a medium point, where their English just went. So it was basically speaking, you know, uh, kind of a mix of English and Spanish, mainly English. Spanglish. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Spanglish. <laughs> yes.
0: So uh, then did you actually form your film company first or did that come as an, you know, after you could produce this first uh, documentary?
4: That's a good question. That absolutely got, fill. I haven't thought about that for a while. then actually came up with the name Positivation. Positive. Positivation. And I thought about it and we used that for a while and it's just stuck. That, uh, so that came just about the time that I produced um this first docu- uh, Los Restos Son, The Kings of the Cuban song.
0: Now, do you have a regular crew? Or is it, you know, obviously you kind of did the first one sort of as a put together, but do you have regular people that you work with for all your uh, cinematography and uh, editing and sound editing and all that?
4: Yes, I do have crew. Mainly the, the people that I've worked with uh, most of the time over the years has been the crew from Santiago um, because that was. The emphasis, that was where I fell in love with the music back that first night when I saw Iliadis. And then we did do some filming in, in Havana for the uh, documentary that premiered on PBS last year called Iliadis Ochoa uh, from Cuba to the World. We did do quite a bit of filming in in and around Havana. That's where he lives now, from Santiago to Havana.
2: So which documentary did I read um, was four years from beginning to end, and so does the crew stay with you or does it change? And I was so intrigued by going to the four different countries to tell the story. So if you could describe oh. that experience, please.
4: Yes, I was seeing Iliadis on a regular basis when I regular is when I was there, mainly during the Trova Festival, which is always in March. He was uh, at the time not traveling so much with Buena Vista. So he was the head of the musical group, you know, the musician group. So he planned uh, this wonderful Casa de la Trova festival every March that I would go. And that's where we did a lot of our filming. And then from there, we would interview different troubadours, things like that. But I told my co-producer that my goal my goal was to interview Iliada Sochola that was my goal. I had seen him on the big screen. I wanted to do that for some kind of documentary that we were working on. Not so much about him was, was our idea, but we wanted to make a documentary about this special place, La Cuna del Song, which means the birthplace of the Song music, which I'll get into that in a little while. But that was the goal was to get to get him in some kind of interview that and he kept saying to ruben my co-producer production partner i'll let you know you know i'll let you know well when i'm ready to give you an interview so it was tough that took i mean this is a man that he got worldwide famous (laughs) and finally after a couple years of me hanging out and Ruben, like, you know, he said, Ruben, come on, let's go. Remember that interview I promised you? Let's go. That was two years of the making. And then the goal was, as Ruben came and we worked to my small studio in Merida, Mexico, our, our goal and our dream was to make a full-length documentary by the Iliadis, Sochoa. It, it was so obvious to me. No Spanish television had done small segments, but no one had done a true documentary film. And I thought, this is it. This this is what we're going for. I know. We're
2: I gonna, love what I love when he said um, he was born with the desire to create. I mean, uh-huh. so it's so fitting that there's this documentary. So, so in this huge process, this, all these, all these years and all this film, as, as we all realize that the raw footage taken and the final film is wildly different. There's all that editing that has to go on. So how do you, do you archive the things that don't make it into the film? Cause I thought, boy, like people will go, boy, I want some more. Do you have, Do you have enough to do like a bonus feature, like an addendum to it?
0: (laughs) A director's cut.
4: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Actually, that's how we ended up doing the current documentary that will premiere on uh, American public television uh, this October 1st. Uh, They're the presenting station. Last year, the presenting station for Iliad is so um, from Cuba to the World, which was the main documentary, was the Connecticut Public PBS. Because we filmed so much material in this five year period, and I was a beginning filmmaker, not really targeted with with a yeah, we had an outline, but we didn't really have a basic plan. And I was having a good time of my life. <laughs> and so we were <laughs> we we just kept filming. I mean, you know, it's also wonderful. And then when I got finally with an editor, the, a Cuban a filmmaker in his own right, uh, who's living in Miami, we just knew that we had gold in our hands, and there was enough. Well, Iliadis used to kid me, Cynthia, you've got enough for four films. <laughs> and we we came out with with two, which I think you know are the two that I think are you know we we, we done good. I mean, we we really took the material, and but it was difficult. I think there was over forty hours of, of wow. Of, of what video. are you filming with? Uh, we were doing HD. Everything's in HD. So mainly Sony cameras HD.
2: my my friend Laura Scruggs, she um did a documentary on um, Uncle Fun, and she used for her first documentary, she used an iPad. So that's why I was oh. curious.
4: <laughs> yes, yeah, the younger, the younger generation. They are amazing. They're making films on their iPhones.
0: Cynthia, I would like to ask now. The oh, yeah. the, the current uh, documentary is live at La Casa de la Trova, so that's derived from that, and that's the one that's going to be coming out in October here on well Lakeshore PBS, for example. So, uh, so that is do I understand that correctly? This is the one of them that you kind of took from all that forty hours of material.
4: That's correct. Because what what we did, Larry, was actually have produced a concert within the famous La Casa de la Trova, up, up in the, the the grande room where I first saw Iliadis. And that was my baby. I choreographed it with professional dancers. Uh, you know, we had three members of the Buena Vista Social Club uh, that you know, colleagues artists, that he invited, I didn't know that was an added bonus <laughs> when they showed up from Havana. I thought, Oh god, golden the hand boy. I mean, we really had it. So this is the ten songs that were sung at that concert. And we call it it's not so much of a documentary. It is, but it's a concert film. Right. And we didn't put this in film festivals. This was more for great PBS. This was more for uh, the first film, uh, The Basic, from Cuba to the World that tells a story right. that's been out for a year, that definitely was film festival uh, material, which we did festivals around the world uh, up until COVID. Fabulous year in 2019. 2020 got stopped in our tracks in March. And uh, the festivals you know, went online or they stopped. And then uh, luckily, I hit the contact with PBS. And I always dreamed that this would be great material for
0: PBS. Real quickly, we only have a couple of minutes left. Tell us about how COVID impacted, well, your production work, but also you personally.
4: I'm a lucky lady. I feel guilty when I complain, but probably very, very lonely time. It ended up that my golden retriever and nine cats uh, that I rescue in Mexico were, were there in Mexico And I was stopped in my tracks, ready to do four and five festivals uh, in Palm Springs, California. And when I got the word that San Diego, Latin film festival had been canceled, you know, because California was the first to go, yeah, to go lockdown. And then, of course, it was just like dominoes. We were invited to two in Argentina, a really fabulous, uh, excuse me, festival in Rio de Janeiro. I'd never been to those two countries. That was where I wanted to target for 2020. To show the film on that America, he's very Iliad, of course, very well known. Those completely got canceled, put online, and of course with COVID still raging, you know, I don't think that'll ever happen. The festival that we I was most excited about, beside that, was one that's based out of Mexico City, and they do what they to, uh, do in Spanish. It's called Guia de Documentales. Guia means tour of the documentary. That was scheduled for two, two and a half months to travel to eight cities, our film, in Mexico. I was thrilled. I was busy, but I was definitely going to go to the one in Mexico City, another one in Better Cruz, and just, because Iliadis lived in Mexico City. I mean, very, and the film had not been shown there at that point. And, you know, to this day, it still hasn't. That's the killer. Well, how um, does that change? I I mean, I guess. Yeah, I want to contact this group. And say, please give it another go. COVID Outdoors is even. Yeah, exactly. Try to get it showing somewhere because it's been around the world. But in Mexico, where I live, in Iliadis' backyard, uh, it really hasn't been widely uh, seen. And, you know, it, it's funny. The world is, you know. Crazy.
0: Well, Cynthia, we do have to wrap up here. So, quickly tell us about when uh, the film is going to be seen on uh, Lakeshore PBS and uh, your contact information, uh, how they can find out about that.
4: Okay. The documentary is going to be showing, I think you should said, Larry, uh, three different times in October
0: October uh, 6th uh, at 11, it, October yes. 19th at 9 p.m., and October 27th at 9 p.m. on exactly. Lakeshore PBS.
4: Yes. And I do have a website would be Positivation Films and I do have one that's particularly for the Iliadis Sochoa from Cuba to the world which has lots of great information would be iliadasochoamovie.com Sochoa
0: movie well we appreciate you coming on Art on the Air from Crown Point Indiana though also a world traveler Cynthia Biestek uh, filmmaker producer and you can see her work there on Lakeshore PBS Cynthia thank you so much for sharing your story on Art on the Air
2: Yeah, congratulations, congratulations. Uh, Thank
1: you so much.
0: You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. And we'd like to welcome to Art in the Air. She's taught art and made art for over 40 years at all levels in a wide range of media. Recently retired in 2016 as an associate professor of art and chair of the art department at St. Joseph College in Rensselaer, where she taught since 1999. And since retiring from teaching... She revels in the luxury of being able to spend time creating, continues to explore her signature sculpture works, emphasis on vessels, as she calls them, baskets that hold ideas, sculptures, and on-site insulation. Please welcome to Art in the Air, Bonnie Zimmer.
2: Welcome, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Well, we'd like to start off with the interview to tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, early influences, and the whole thing. So I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now.
5: Sure. Sure. Well, I was very fortunate to grow up in rural northwest Indiana in the town of Wheatfield on my family's farm, and I played outdoors with my younger sister, Lana, all summer long. We would play in the woods. We would wait in the ditch bank, pick flowers. One of our favorite things was to rake up pine needle floor plans into architectural structures out in the woods. And I, I just had a wonderful childhood playing out in nature. Now, little did I know at that time that those early nature experiences would embed themselves in my artist soul and would actually inform the work that I do today. Um, but moving on, I, I have always been a maker. I learned to knit and sew when I was age 10. I was making Barbie clothes on my grandma's, (laughs) treadle sewing machine that uh, was a blast. I didn't really like Barbie,
2: but I love making the clothes. So, Bonnie, Bonnie, was it... Um, so I'm hearing, and I read that your grandmother was a big artistic influence, but the household was filled with artists. So did you get a lot of, um, so was it mom and dad both or and grandma? Actually,
5: or? actually, my grandma wasn't an artist at all. She just happened to have a treadle sewing machine and lived downstairs in our dual family home. My mother, uh, her name is Doris Myers. She is an artist and was quite an influence on me. But just being allowed to, to create and play freely um, really helped me establish myself as a maker but one early experience that was very important when I was in the sixth grade I had this fabulous home ec teacher that we learned how to sew on the sewing machine we've made uh, things from patterns she taught me how to read a pattern how to sew properly and probably the most important thing she taught me to rip it out if it wasn't right (laughs) and so all of those things really really gave me this grounding and love of fiber and fabrics and process and meticulous craftsmanship which are really important to me through this day. So I went on to actually study fiber and textiles in college. I got a BFA in textiles uh, from Indiana university. Um, And, took an unprecedented seven semesters of weaving as an undergraduate. I took off for college three weeks out of high school, so I was able to get all my foundation courses in in the summer, which put me miles ahead of my peers. So anyway, I had seven semesters of woven and constructed textiles, um, where, as Larry said, I learned to make baskets, contemporary art baskets that are pretty useless in the functional world, but in the conceptual emotive art world, I like to say they hold ideas. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I got my grounding. And that really informs what I make today. But um, my husband and I both made the conscious decision to be educators. I decided I would be an art teacher to make a living. And I would be an artist on the side. And I I don't regret that decision for a moment. What grade did you focus on? I taught every level except kindergarten, I taught first through 12th grade, I actually taught in the Hebrew schools while I started at, at middle school for four years, um, and then had my family and ended up going back into teaching and teaching at Hebron Elementary, nine years, that's the elementary level, and then I moved up to high school, so I left there after 12 years to go full-time to St. Joe. My first graders were seniors when, when I left, so that was kind of cool, um, but something I'll also mention, I actually started teaching part-time at St. Joseph's College in their little art department, just one or two classes. I started in 1980. So this was a parallel thing that I did through my whole public teaching career. I always taught at St. Joseph's College. And so when they hired me full time in 1998, I had already been there for a couple of decades almost. And I was hired to start a small art program. So anyway, that last 14 years or so of my teaching at St. Joe's was absolutely wonderful. I've had such a lucky life.
2: So what did you do in the art program? What What was uh? Well, at St. Joseph's
5: College, basically, I taught just about everything from foundation design to painting, drawing, ceramics. And I also had a parallel art education program. So managed to graduate a few art teachers out of there, too. So it was just doing everything that I love because I do love teaching along with making. So it was a great parallel uh, situation.
0: I'm curious about your approach uh, with the wide range of uh, ages that you taught all the way from first grade into college. How does your approach different? How do you deal like, with uh, young elementary versus high school and also kids that are really interested in art or kids that are just taking it for an art credit? Sure. Right?
5: Um, I I guess probably my biggest strength was really sort of respecting every student for the individual that he or she is and finding something to love about every age level. You know, people scream say, oh, middle school, ah, I love middle schoolers. (laughs) You know, you just have to realize that even the coolest middle schooler is kind of a dork. And so you have to love them and guide them and reign them in when possible. But I think just having that really strong, positive personal relationships with every single student, um, was what it was all about.
2: I agree.
0: And at uh, St. Joseph, you actually developed that art program from what you yes. described. When so tell I s-
5: started in 1980, it had an art minor program, meaning people could take a few classes and get like an 18-hour minor. And they had people coming and going. And so when I came in 1980, I was kind of the main art person. There was another woman who taught with me as well for a number of years. But my dream was always to get an art major going at St. Joe's. And so in 98, uh, they allowed that to happen. And it was great.
0: And so when you left in 2016, you were chair of the department. And uh, how many uh, people did you have on staff then?
5: Well, I I had another full-time gentleman who taught with me, and then usually an adjunct or two as well. So there were several of us um, handling the course load that it took to cover everything because we we had a ceramics area. I mean, our facilities were pretty modest. Most high schools were nicer and fancier than ours, but that didn't matter at all. Um, the relationship. So you did have a ceramics
2: program. What yeah. so Was it painting and textiles as well? Basically everything.
5: Yes, I had a couple of looms. I, I had a fibers class that I taught, uh, surface design. We had ceramics, both wheel throwing and hand building, uh, painting, drawing, kind of ran the whole gamut for being such a tiny program. Of course, nobody had any tremendous depth in any of those areas unless they got an upper level and did independent work. But um, we just had such a, a A family spirit within the department. It was just a delight to be there every
1: day.
0: So and now that you're retired, you are now free to aid, create and exhibit and it's it's taking the bonds of having the daily routine off. So tell us about that transition from in 2016 when you were able to go out and start doing and exploring new arts.
5: I worked so hard when I was teaching because I taught full time and then I made time from the mid 80s on, I made time to be an artist as well. And I think that was very critical to the balance of of my life, because if I were only a teacher, I would feel myself starting to disappear. And so that that making in tandem with my teaching and work, kept things in balance. Crazy and hectic as it was, it was really necessary. So my husband, who was a high school principal here in town, um, retired a year before me. And so again, it's almost every day we punch each other. Up. Oh man, how about this retirement? It's so <laughs>
1: great.
5: And we, like like you said, a quote of mine is we just le- revel in the luxury of not having to punch a time clock, not having to be responsible for other people and lesson plans. Um, but the transition was very, very easy to make i still love to get up at four or five in the morning but i can go out in the studio with the cat and a cup of coffee and oh it's just (laughs) heaven
2: so it was an easy transition though to answer your question so um i read about the prairie arts council and i'm wondering well i would love to to know more about that but also ultimately to find out are the art camps continuing i know you left with like this oh to be continued so yes well
5: Prairie Arts Council, which I hadn't mentioned before, is another one of my life passions. Um, In the early 90s, I was part of a small group that wanted to have arts in our small rural community. And so you got to put your money where your mouth is. So that was another uh, piece of the pie of my life that I devoted a lot of volunteer time to, helping to found it. And then I founded Art Camp, and it grew into a huge, intensive, week-long summer workshop. But I had done it for, I think, 25 years, and I said... I'm done. I just have to be done. And I tried to mentor and train other people to do it. And they would throw up their hands and say, I can't do this. So um, anyway, we've taken a couple year hiatus. We tried to bring it back a little bit last summer, but with COVID, it just didn't seem to work. But I'm mentoring a young woman who wants to be chair and we're hoping to bring it back in 2022. In fact, we're meeting about that right now, but I'm trying to back out and not micromanage and run things. But Organizing workshops is something that I love to do and that I'm pretty good at. And so um, it's hard not to stick my nose in too deeply. We are trying to bring it back.
0: While you brought up uh, COVID, why don't you tell us a little about just as a, a moment before we continue to talk about your art, uh, how that's uh, affected you both personally and your art and exhibiting.
5: Well, in terms of my art, I had ske- I had a, a solo show for last fall, September of 2020, scheduled a, a show called A Show of Hands, which I might talk more about in a minute. Um And it didn't seem to be coming off the docket. So when everything shut down in mid to late March, I actually sewed masks for three solid months. I would get up in the morning and I would sew masks for eight hours a day. I would send them out to friends. I would sell them. It was just this crazy driven mission that I felt like it was something that I could control because I couldn't control anything else. So I would make masks all day. Bill would be doing crosswords and we'd meet for lunch in the living room. Um, (laughs) But then I realized, oh, wow, Show of Hands is coming up here pretty soon. So I kicked into gear and it was so strange. This muse just dropped upon me and I created all of these wonderful, interesting sculptures and textiles and all sorts of things that had a hand in it. The the theme of the show was Show of Hands. Um, so let's see, back to answer your question, the show of hands ended up being kind of a testimony to surviving COVID. Um, I, as a senior citizen, it was sort of like every hand in the show was like me raising my hand saying, present, I'm still here, COVID, ha And uh, <laughs> we had a reception in September, everybody came masked. Um, and so really, it did not affect me other than I had to stay home all the time, which I actually really enjoyed. I tend to want to spread myself too thin anyway. And so having to stay home was a pleasure. And you Definitely. still
0: live on a farm, correct?
5: Yes. Bill and I have uh, an old farmhouse on 20 acres, and he built me a giant pole barn when I retired, so I have a place for all my stuff. And we, we just couldn't be happier. We, we're, we feel so lucky to have such a beautiful existence.
0: So uh, I know your materials, you don't go to the store and buy it. You don't go to your local uh, craft shop or anything. Your source of materials, yeah. talk about that.
5: I haven't talked at all about what I make. Yes. Yeah. Um, so... Really, in the early 90s, I was able to go away and take a workshop with actions even in the 80s, take a workshop with a couple of people who worked in natural materials and it just seemed to crystallize what I wanted to do and the work that I wanted to do. And so I began to intentionally limit myself to natural and found materials in my immediate area. Unless somebody gifts me some really crazy great thing from another part of the country, the fact that it was a gift for me, I will use it. But um, by limiting myself to those local materials, it just, I have such great sense of place and it just is the perfect uh, media that I can make meaning with. And so I will- such a freedom.
2: Post- Don't you find a freedom in that too?
5: Yeah, I, I mean- when you think about making art and the gazillion directions you could go and the gazillion things that you could make, somehow you've got to stop, focus, who am I, what do I want to make, what does this work about, and find that direction. And so I feel like Natural Materials was this perfect branch or ladder to where I want to go creatively. Um, and many of the shows that I've had focus on and utilize those materials Um, i had a solo show at the lafayette museum in the fall of 2018 and the title was legacies and everything in the show was made from items that i inherited either from nature family or friends and so it was all made up of natural found materials vessels, sculpture installation Um, but it had a lot of particular meaning so that was that was
0: delightful you're listening to art on the air wVLP 103.1 FM and on lakeshore public radio 89.1 FM
5: um, I currently actually have a piece in art prize at Grand Rapids Michigan. I have a big goddess she's called my Gaia and you'll be able to see that on my website if you go there and I'll tell you that in a minute but she is about a I would say an eight foot tall goddess. Made completely out of natural and found materials. She has a gigantic Cinderella skirt that is all corn stalks that fan out. Her upper torso was actually cast from a mannequin, but then I made a sweet corn coiled basket bustier to go over the front of it. And she has this wild hair made of curly willow and curly willow arms. She has a couple of castings. My niece, I cast my niece's face in my hands, but she is representing Mother Earth and her gifts and her magic. Oh, I
2: have a technical, I have a couple technical questions. (laughs) One is with all this natural material, is there any type of protective coating that goes on any of it and what are your, do you have to build, like for Gaia, is there a special crate that needs to, because I can imagine the twigs are very hard to transport. So how so do you transport really your great art? questions. Number one, I don't coat
5: anything with natural materials. I try to get them dry completely so they're stable. Takes a while to get the crickets out of the corn stalks, but <laughs> eventually they go. Um, Gaia was actually built in pieces. I built a huge armature out of three inverted heavy-duty tomato cages. So the three of those go together to form sort of this big circular domed thing with a little platform on top. And then Gaia is actually from the hips up. She is a, a plaster cast. I use plaster gauze and cast a mannequin. Um, and then her arms are connected uh rather trickily her head is connected to that so to transport her she sat on a box on the floor in a trailer nested up against a hand cart bungeed to the wall so she didn't fall over her hair was streaming out to the back so yes it was kind of a trick but her corn stalks were bundled in giant tarps um the rocks that go around the base of the installation i had five five gallon buckets of rocks and buckets of sand that also go in the installation and grasses and um Oh, what else? Pine cones, some feathers. Um,
0: Stones. I remember so, seeing it those. Is a,
5: it is a temporary installation, though.
0: And where so. is it? Where is she at right now?
5: She is currently in Grand Rapids, Michigan, at Art Prize, which is the spectacular 18 day international art festival all over the city of Grand Rapids. It's a three square mile area of art. There are literally hundreds of artists and hundreds of venues. Um, so I'm very honored to get into it. But she's at the Hyatt Place a downtown hotel right in the lobby along with four other artists um, and I'm just so thrilled to be there it's my first time um, if you go to artprize.org you can see information about it. there's a video on it. it's been going on since 2009 and it has grown into the largest art festival of its kind in the world it's an energy about art there yeah it's fabulous
0: so, you think you'd find a good. permanent home for her like in a museum or something somewhere
5: no,
1: <laughs> no he's,
5: so it's so just the- too jerry-rigged to be anything permanent. I would have to do some real serious connections and stabilizing of things. Plus the ethereal nature of those natural materials, um, those corn stalks are going to continue to degrade over right. the years. Um, I've spiders are going to spiders yeah. are going to find a home. Um, yes, I've made baskets out of milkweed pods, and when they get to be about eight or ten years old, they literally just crumble apart. So, um, but I I, I love it's kind that of beautiful home. back to the earth. It really is. It really is.
0: So, what projects are you looking forward to? Yeah, have you had something that you're looking forward to making or creating? You know, what's on the horizon for you?
5: Well. Uh, Currently, I'm going to back up for a second. Currently, I have two sculptures in the uh, salon show at South Shore Arts at Munster. I'm waiting to hear on the jury results of that. But one is a kooky piece called Dance Off that's made from kind of slingshot curly willow that I had drilled holes and warped in between and used dead iris sleeves to weave in the gaps. And then I hooked three of them together and they, it is the liveliest. It looks like three little girls dancing with their legs kicked up. And then I also have a bark vessel that is also called dance Two That has a very dynamic, uh, kind of inherent motion to it. So those two are there and that show is opening October 3rd. 3rd yes. Um, so I'm excited for that. Um, and then, um, art prize, of course, is going on. And I was just invited to be in a new show. And I can't remember the title that's going to be at the Midwest Museum of Art next spring, that deals with found materials. And so I'm very excited to um, revive a couple of my former directions. One is called Kill Dance Basket that I do vessels out of tires, shredded tires that I find along the highway. So I'm kind of excited to bring those back and the, the, the stories that those tires can evoke and tell, I think will be sort of fun. But I want to do a whole new set of found objects because the whole thing is about um, how evocative found materials are and how we can look at our, our world through that lens of things that have been thrown away and reclaimed.
2: So do you add other unnatural materials to it? Like, do you add paint or anything to um, any of well, your pieces my diet... Or- yeah, my Gaia is rather interesting because she has
5: a giant semicircular piece of flat metal that I found on the highway. Not even a month before I finished <laughs> her up, and she be- it became this beautiful headpiece. And then she has blue stem prairie grass and all sorts of native grasses tucked in her head around it, so it became this fabulous hat or headpiece. So I, I love to include found objects that relate to and work with the natural materials. And Gaia, I actually gold leaf her face and her hands. So I wanted to elevate in our mind, just the status of Mother Nature and the homage that we're paying. You know how gold leaf, you know, we just all get that. That's something very special. So I do mix up media and materials. But And to be in that natural realm, neutral in color.
0: So, Bonnie, tell us about one of the most unique found uh, objects that you have or donated or something that you used in your art.
5: Oh, gosh. Well, I've had quite a few interesting things. Um, One of my favorite things was I came home and there was this big chunk of tire on my back step. (laughs) And I found out that my friend from Japan, who had driven from Bloomington up to Rensselaer, had found it along the road and brought it to me as her special house gift and I, I just thought that's about the best house gift I've ever had so that big hunk of tire is pretty special and it was incorporated into a piece um, but Gaia's head piece too I mean the 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 spirits send me great things i had another beautiful piece of rusty metal that i found for my hands show that looked like a mesa oh and it was all rusty oh you couldn't reproduce the beauty of that if i tried and so it ended up being a mesa with little lead hands and turkey feathers and things tucked in around it so those are two pretty
2: special items so an image of that it is really really wonderful
0: you, uh, your husband built you a, uh, you, I guess I'll call it a she shed so you can work in. Is that correct?
2: <laughs> well,
5: it's pretty much a, a duo shed because he has all of his toys in there too. I don't really work out there, but because I do installation, I literally have shelves filled with bags of items because each time I take an installation apart, if you can imagine all sorts of rocks and acorns and old rusty wrenches and things laid out meticulously in a beautiful design on the floor in a circle, I, I call them my mandalas, um, (laughs) all that stuff gets picked up and sorted back into its bag and gets put back on the shelf till I use it next time. So I consider that my my treasured collection of -of one-of-a-kind items.
0: Well, we ask you about what you're looking forward to. Is there any other found objects uh, or materials that you would like to work with that you haven't?
5: Yes. Welding. Learning to weld is on my bucket list because (laughs) I really developed an affinity for metal i didn't used to like the touch of it or anything now i love it so i want to learn to weld and compete with those guys doing the outdoor stuff i'd like to do some outdoor forms as well but that's on my bucket list i'm not sure when i'll get to that but it's there
0: have you done any art shows like uh art fairs and things like that from with the booth yes
5: Yes, I forgot to mention that. So when I when I want to be serious, I make serious art that is, for the most part, conceptually based. But when I'm two ways and I just want to play, I make a whole set of wearables. I do copper and beaded jewelry. I do eco-dyed clothing and scarves, uh, also tie-dye and ice-dye. And I have so much fun taking that to art fairs and selling that. I was in the Chesterton Art Fair this past summer for the first time, and, and that was very fun.
0: And I think I saw you there. Well, real quickly, tell us how people can find out about you, websites their social media and things like that.
5: The best place probably is my website and it's simply Bonnie And then that links pretty much to everything else. But I, I do post art things on Instagram and it's just at Bonnie Zimmer Artist. And then Facebook. This is a tricky one, Bonnie Zimmer. So you almost can't. <laughs> and Bonnie miss. is B-O-N-N-I-E. A-E, correct. Right. Z I M M E R, just like it sounds.
0: Well, Bonnie, we appreciate you coming on. Art in the Air, that was Bonnie Zimmer. Uh, she's made art, taught art over 40 years, is creating art. She has so many ideas of like baskets that hold sculptures and things. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your art journey.
5: Thank you for the opportunity, Larry. Nice Thank to you, meet Bonnie. you, Lester.
0: You've been listening to Art in the Air, and we'd like to thank our guests this week We're on WVLP, 103.1 FM, and Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, our weekly program covering arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art in the Air is heard every Friday at 11 a.m. and rebroadcast Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP. Art in the Air streams live at wvlp.org and is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Plus is also heard on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM every Sunday at 7 p.m. Also streaming live at lakeshorepublicradio.org and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Thanks again to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant and the National Endowment for the Arts. Underwriters for Art in the Air Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments and Marilyn Van, Arts Patron. Art in the Air is always looking for financial support. We'd like to thank our current supporters. If you're looking to support Art in the Air... Esther and I especially would invite you to become an underwriter of this program in particular. We have information on our website at breck.com slash AOTA. You can find out support information there. So don't just be an art on the air listener. Become a supporter or underwriter in whatever amount you're able to do so. So we continue to bring you this great content and this great local programming. And like I say every week. Don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. And you'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. And show
1: the world your heart. Express yourself your heart. And show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Mary. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself your heart. And show the world your heart. Express yourself your art. And show the world